0: Namaskaram. Today I'm going to be talking about uh, verse three of Uladu Napadu. <clears throat> the, the central message of verse three is the same as the central message of verse two. That is what Bhagavan is teaching us in these two verses. Is that is he He says this at the beginning of this work to make it clear to us, what is the purpose of Uludrinapidu? The purpose of Uludrinapidu is not just to teach us a philosophy, but we can argue with others. Because in the world, there will always be so many different views, so many different beliefs, so many different ideas. Everyone is entitled to believe whatever they want to believe, so long as they're not doing any harm to anyone else. Um, We are not here. To argue with others. we are, what, what Bhagavan has taught us is for our own salvation, for the eradication of our own ego. That is what Bhagavan is emphasizing in these two verses. Since the central theme of these two verses are, 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 is the same, I will first uh, go over verse two again, which is the verse we discussed last time. That is, in verse 1, Bhagavan said um, <clears> that uh, the, the, <clears throat> because we see the world, accepting one fundamental that has a power to become many is certainly the one best option. Uh, and then he said, the picture of names and forms, that means this world picture, or all phenomena it basically means, the one who sees, namely ego, the cohesive screen, that is the the background against which we see all this, and the pervading light, the light of awareness by which we see all this, all these are he who is oneself. He here refers to the one fundamental. Um, We can also take it as um, indirectly referring to God, um, because the one fundamental, normally we would refer to as it, but one refers to it as he. But he emphasizes he who is oneself. So that that one fundamental is what we actually are. Um, then in verse two, he uh, what he says in verse two is um, <coughs> each religion initially accepts three fundamentals those three fundamentals he doesn't specify it in, in the verse but in the Kali Vemba version he does specify it world soul and God that is religion here the term is matum it means every uh it means every um every uh <coughs> every system of belief that aims towards salvation but every system of belief and uh, set of practices that aim towards salvation they accept three fundamentals first the soul that is we we have a soul then there's a the world we see and there's something beyond this world this world and soul um which is uh, uh, can be called god or nirvana or whatever it is there is some something beyond this appearance of s- the world the the, the soul, ourself, is the subject. The world is objects. Beyond that is, behind this, sub, this appearance of subject and objects, there is a reality. Whether you call it God or Nirvana or whatever it may be, all um, all systems of belief that, um are Aim towards salvation, whatever their idea of salvation may be, they all accept three fundamentals. There's the, there's the soul, there's the world, and there's something beyond these, some underlying reality. Um, <clears throat> and then he goes on to say contending only one fundamental stands as the three fundamentals, or the three fundamentals are always actually three fundamentals. Is only so long as ego exists. That is, different systems of belief uh, have different views. All initially accept three fundamentals, but some, like a Dwaita, say all these three are actually only one. Uh, 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 Three is an appearance, one is the reality. Whereas other more uh, dualistic uh, systems of belief believe that these are these three fundamentals are always separate. There's God, there's the, the world, and there's the jiva, the soul. And these are always separate. Um, so uh, there are different views on this. The Bhagavan has clearly in the previous uh, verse, he's indicated uh, what he considers, what he advises us to accept as the one best option, but there's only one fundamental. Um, but um and that is that one fundamental that is appearing of these three fundamentals, that is Bhagavan's view, but or that's what Bhagavan teaches, but that is not we we are not to engage in argument about that. I probably believe in um in have in more ju- have more dualistic systems of belief, um there that that's fine. That's what is suitable for them at their present stage of development. So we are not here to argue about these things. And all such arguments, as Baron points out, they're all only so long as ego exists. That means it's only when we rise as ego that we see others, we see different points of view, and that we get engaged in arguments. So um the, the root of all these problems is ego. One is uh, that is the central theme throughout uh, Ulladunnapli. That ego is the problem. So all arguments arise only because of ego. In the absence of ego, as in sleep, there are no arguments. We don't we don't have philosophical arguments in sleep. Only in waking and dream are all these arguments uh, possible. And then he concludes the verse by saying. I perishing, I here refers to ego, I perishing, uh, standing in the state of oneself is best. That means uh, uh, er eradicating ego and just being as we actually are, that is best. Um, He says very much the same in the third verse. Um, What he says in the third verse, he, um, he goes into a little bit more detail both about the types of arguments that arise and about the means by which we can get rid of ego. Uh, what he says in verse three is he gives different, he first presents different points of view. Uluhu may the world is real. Poitotram, an unreal appearance. That, these are two different points of view. Some people believe the world is real. Others believe it's just a false appearance. Uluhu Arivam, the world is awareness, Andrew. Uh, Andrew means uh, it is not. Um, so some people, some people believe that the world is, they, there is sentience to be seen in the world. Others believe that they, the world is jada, it has no sentience at all. The world is an object, but what is sentient is ego, the one who sees the world. So though, that again, two points of view. Um, and another two points of view he he uh, he um, uh, he mentions after that is uluhu uh, sukum Andrew that is the world is happiness it is not that is some people believe happiness can be obtained from the world uh, others recognize that there's no happiness in the world so basically what this uh, these these three arguments whether the world is real or unreal. Whether it's awareness or, or ignorance or whether or, or, or awareness or jada uh, devoid of awareness, or whether it's happiness or not, uh, there's no happiness in the world, all uh, that is this, this is sat chitananda. Is the world real or not? Is, in other words, is it sat or is it not sat? Is it awareness or not? Is it chit or not? That means. And is it happiness or not? Is it ananda? So the, the reference here is the satchidananda, whether the world is satchidananda or whether it is not ananda Of course, the perspective from Bhagavan's point of view, the world is just a false appearance. It is jada. It is not jada means not aware, and it is. Um, it is d- devoid of happiness. There's no happiness to be obtained in the world. What is real is only ourself. That fundamental awareness I am, our own being, that is what is real. That alone is what I- is a w- true awareness, and that alone is happiness. So there's no happiness to be found outside. There's no reality to be found outside. No awareness to be found outside. What we... What we are seeking needs to be found within. That is Bhagavan's teachings. But the point here, the point he's making here is he, he mentioned these different points of view. And then he says, Endru to e, n." En. That means, literally, it means, uh, why disputing? Like this. Um, <coughs> Uh, why here implies what is the use of it? What is the benefit of disputing? Why, once we, if we study Uludunapadu, the purpose of studying Uludunapadu is to investigate ourselves and know what we actually are. It's not to engage in arguments. So, though Bhagavan teaches us that the world is just an unreal appearance, but it is jada and that devoid of happiness, having understood that, what should we do? We should investigate what is real, what is awareness, what is happiness, namely ourselves. We shouldn't go out to the world and start arguing. So, Boban says, all such, the implication is all such arguments are, fut- are, 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 are meaningless, purposeless, they, they're of no benefit, as, as he implied in the previous verse. And in the previous verse, he, then, he says all these arguments are possible only so long as ego exists in the previous verse. And then he says, I perishing, standing in the state of oneself is best. This he elaborates upon more here. How do this I perish and how do we stand in our real state is what is implied in the second half of this verse. He says, "Uluhu vitu, leaving the world, that means withdrawing our mind from the world, ceasing to take interest in the world. If we understand that the world is just a, an illusory appearance, it's just a dream, why should we continue taking interest in it? Why should we want to convince others? So we should leave all thought of the world. Uh, and then he says, uh uh Uluhu Vitu, that's leaving the world. Uh, um that doesn't mean outwardly leaving the world. Inwardly, we need to leave all interest in the world. Then he says, Tane Ondu. O, o, ondu is an adverbial participle from the verb OR, which has two meanings in this context. OR means both investigation and knowing. So, Tane Ondu in this context implies investigating and knowing oneself. Um, that is the means to get rid of the ego. So, leaving the world, investigating and knowing oneself. Then he says, Onju irendu tanatru. Um, uh, Onju means one, irendu means two. Um, Tan is, is an intensifier here, so it can be taken as itself, or it, it, we need not translate it, it's more or less uh, can be taken as a poetic expletive here. Andriy tan atru atru means ceasing. So one and two ceasing. What does he mean by one and two ceasing? Here, one refers to advaita, two refers to uh, dvaita. So, but the implication is all arguments about duality and non-duality ceasing. That is only when we allow our attention to go outwards. Is there room to be engaged in arguments about uh, whether there's whether duality or non-duality? Um, so all such uh, all such arguments ceasing, and then he says, "Non acta annile elocum opuam." That means that state in which I has perished is agreeable to all. Um, why does he say it's agreeable to all some people may say no no i I don't want a state devoid of i but every day in sleep we go into that state devoid of i and we all find sleep very agreeable nobody um nobody objects to having to sleep everyone when we are tired there's nothing we want more than to sleep however many des- worldly desires we may have all our worldly desires will be uppermost in our mind when we're fresh and vigorous. When we become tired, we, we drop all our worldly desires and want nothing but to su- more than to subside in sleep. So that shows that this state is agreeable to all. But of course, Bhagavan isn't recommending that we sleep because sleep is just a temporary state. Sleep is a state of manalaya, a temporary dissolution of mind. We want a permanent dissolution of mind. That that state in which I has perished, that means not not merely uh, ceased temporally as in sleep, but perished forever. That state in which ego is eradicated, and how do we eradicate ego? Only by investigating and knowing ourselves. And in order to investigate and know ourselves. We have to withdraw our mind from the world. We have to withdraw our attention from the world in order to turn it within. So leaving the world is a necessary prerequisite for investigating ourselves. And um, when we turn within, all thought about and all arguments about duality and non-duality will cease. Because it's only when we look out that there seem to be many things. When we look within, if we look within... um, keenly enough, deeply enough, we will see But we alone exist. So, um, yes, that is duality, but it, it's, sorry, it's a non-duality, but it is devoid of even the possibility of any duality. when there's only one without a second, ecomeba That is what the real meaning of a dvata, it, it, though it's usually translated as um, non-duality, what it means is uh, devoid of any second thing. That is, it is ekam eva adwitiam. Ekam eva adwitiam, that's a, a statement in one of you Panishads. It's a beautiful description. It means one only without a second. So there's only one thing without any second thing. What is that one thing? Tatva masi, you are that. So we ourselves are the one thing that actually exists. So what, what do we need to do? We need to investigate and know ourselves. When we know ourselves, I will perish. I here refers to ego. What we actually are is the pure I am. When that pure uh, I am refers to our being and to our awareness of our being, which are one and the same, that is what is real. When that is mixed and conflated with adjuncts, as I am this, I am that, I am this person, I am this body, I am Michael, I am whoever, um, that is ego. That adjunct mixed awareness is ego. If you remove the adjuncts, so just the pure I am alone remains, that is what is real. That is one without a second. And we can know that only by turning our attention within. So in these two verses, verses two and three, Bhagavan is warning us, or or he he is, yes, warning us, he is, uh, he's, he's cautioning us not to get engaged in arguments. Arguments are futile. If anyone comes to us and asks about Bhagavan's teachings, if they really want to learn, we can discuss, we can tell them what we understand about Bhagavan's teachings. But if they come just to have arguments with us, it, the arguments don't benefit them and they don't benefit us. Nobody is benefited by an argument or, or an argument in the sense of a disputation. If it's argument in the sense of a reasoning, if someone wants to know what is the reason for believing Bhagavan teachings, why should we accept what Bhagavan says, then we can give uh, logical arguments. But that isn't that isn't disputation. That is just explaining the reasons why it is reasonable to believe what bhagavan has taught us and why it is reasonable to focus our attention on following the path that he has shown us so, and the path that he has shown us is investigating ourselves and thereby eradicating ego when ego is eradicated that uh, um as he says in the previous verse um uh, Yan ketu, Now I, I perishing, uh, uh, rem, uh, being or or standing in one's own state, in the state of oneself, that's in our natural state, is best. And he, as he says here, that state in which I has perished is agreeable to all. So that is what Uludu, this is what Uludanaptu is all about. It, though Bhagavan in the Verses that follow in four, five, six, seven, and so on, he talks about the world. But why does he talk about the world? Why does he emphasize that the world is unreal? In order to show us why it is necessary for us to know ourselves before trying to know anything else. So Bhagavan talks about the world, not because he's concerned about the world, because our mind tends to go out towards the world. We need to understand the unreality of the world. We need to understand what is real is not anything we see outside, but only our own fundamental awareness, I am. Um, So, uh, that is the main uh, uh, import of this and the previous verse. So, does anyone have any questions they'd like to ask about this?
1: So, thank you, Michael. Um, And I think I remember um, you having an online discussion with, you know, on the blog. Yes. Somebody quoted this verse um, and said, it really doesn't matter whether the world is real or not. That's how they interpreted this verse. And then you responded to that as that's not the important (laughs) words. I think you just touched briefly on it. Do you want to elaborate on that conversation?
0: Yes. If, if it doesn't matter whether the world is real or not, why does Bhagavan in the subsequent verses explain the unreality of the world? What what Bhagavan is saying here is not that it doesn't matter whether there's one fundamental or three fundamentals. It doesn't matter whether the world is real or unreal. That is not the point Bhagavan is making. The point is there's no point in disputing about these. But if we want to investigate and know ourselves, we need to know that what exists is only one thing and we are that. And therefore, in order to know what actually exists, we need to investigate ourselves and in order to investigate ourselves, we need to leave the world, leave all thought of the world that's why he says "ulu vitu," so we will be willing to leave the world only when we are firmly convinced that the world is not real, what is real is only I am then only when we when we understand that clearly, will we be willing to uh, leave the world and the term within to know what we actually are.
1: And what we actually are is uh, the verse 28 of Opadesun there.
0: Yes, but he alludes to here, mm-hmm. Satchitananda, when he says about the world, is the world real? No, it's not. Is the world, did the world exist? No, it does not. Is the world awareness? No, it is not. Um uh uh is the world happiness? No, it is not. So where to find Satchitananda If we can't find it in the world, we can find it only in ourselves because we are lo- Sachidananda is our real nature. That's why he says in verse 28 of Rupadesha Undia, if one knows when one knows what one's real nature is, then beginningless, infinite, unbroken Satchitananda that me that implies two things. Firstly, it implies our real nature is uh, beginningless, infinite, um, unbroken, satchidananda. It also implies that when we know ourselves, that is all that will remain.
1: Thank you, Michael. Um, uh, so if you have any questions, please post it in the chat box, and we will address um, it. You know, you know, the order received. Um. So, Satya um, Chilakuri is asking a question, is Jiva and Ishvara um, are identical or are they one and the same? Uh,
0: identical and one and the same means means the same. Yeah. They, 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 are, they are not different. Um, all differences arise because we have risen as ego. Ego is the soul, the Jiva. Because we have risen as ego, we have created an appearance of separation. That is, when we rise as ego, we limit ourselves as the extent of a body. We, t- we take ourselves to be, I am this body. Because we have limited ourselves, there are so many, there appear to be so many other things. That is, when we take ourselves to be the form of a body, there seem to be so many other forms. Uh, so the world seems to be separate from us, or we seem to be a small part of the world, and God seems to be separate from us. So but this is only an appearance, it's not real. As Bhagavan says in verse um, 24 of Upadesha Undia, ava undipara upadi that means by existing nature, God, uh, the soul and God. Um or uh, yeah, so yeah, God and soul are one are one substance. What that means is when you say what do you mean by by their existing nature? In English we would normally say in their existing nature, but it amounts to the same thing. That is, what is but that one substance, our own being, our being and the being of God, our existence and the existence of God. Are not two different things. So, what what we essentially are is nothing other than God. What makes us seem to be different from God is only upadi unavu, the awareness of adjuncts. Now I'm aware of myself as I am Michael. I am this little person. So how can I be God? How can Michael certainly isn't God? So I seem to be separate from God because I take myself to be Michael, but. What God actually is, is that which is shiny in our heart as I am. That is what we actually are. If we remove the adjuncts, what remains is only that fundamental awareness I am, which is Satchidananda. And that is God, and that is what we actually are. That is why one of our fundamental um, principles of Advaita is um, Jiva Brahmaikya, the oneness of Jiva and Brahman. That is, the differences appear only because of the, uh, the adjuncts that, uh, that Jiva has takes to be itself. But in our in our being, in our essential nature, we and God are one.
1: Thank you, Michael. Thank you. That's well addressed. And um, there is a and question. likewise.
0: Can I just say one more thing? Sure, please. The world, the world appears in whose view? only in the view of self as ego. So the world has no existence independent of ego. So the world is, in, in essence, nothing but the ego. That is, ego is the dreamer, the world is what is dreamt. What is dreamt has no existence independent of the dreamer. It is the dreamer seeing itself as the world, as, as the dream world. Uh, that is why Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Uludhinaptu, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. That is, what we are now seeing of mm-hmm. this world is nothing but ourselves. Um, so everything is not, all this, All objects, all phenomena, the whole world is nothing but ego. And ego, if ego, if we as ego investigate ourselves, if we turn our attention within to see who am I, we will thereby subside and merge back into our source and see that we are nothing but Brahman. So the world is not is nothing but jiva, and jiva is nothing but Brahman. So ultimately, Brahman alone exists. And what is Brahman? We are that.
1: Thank you, Michael. And um, this is a really good question here. Um the listener likes to be anonymous. Um, in partu Swami Song, yes, um, yeah. sings, in the cave of our heart, we can see God who exists everywhere. Only after we have seen him here with all that exists, be seen to consist of him. <inaudible>
0: Yes, that's a very beautiful verse. (laughs)
1: verse, Um, So I will read it again uh, for the benefit um, of all devotees. In the cave of our heart, we can see God who exists everywhere. Only after we have seen him here will all that exists be seen to consist of him. You speak of there only being one thing, namely ourself. Can you explain Sri Sadovam's words in the light of Bhagavan's teachings as a whole?
0: That is, God here refers to our own real nature. We are, that is, uh, Anadi, Ananta, Ananda. We are uh, beginningless. That means eternal. Uh, uh, anadi means endless. It also means eternal. It means without any limit, without any end. So we are infinite and we are unbroken. So, there cannot be any place where we are not, where Sachidananda is not. So, uh, God is referring to our real nature here. God who exists everywhere. Um, God who exists everywhere. Can be seen only in the, in the cave of the That is, so long as we look outwards, We are seeing this world of names and forms. Or we are seeing within the mind, we're seeing thoughts and so on. That's all outwards. We need to look back within, look deep within ourselves. Only when we look deep within ourselves can we see what we actually are. That is, so long as we are looking outwards, we are seeing multiplicity but multiplicity is unreal. What is real is ekam eva one only without a second. That is God, that is our soul. So though God exists everywhere, because everything obviously exists only, can only, since God is the only thing that actually exists, nothing can exist independent of God. So just like if you have a gold, if you have a, um a bunch of gold ornaments you may have rings and necklaces and bangles and everything each one of those gold ornaments is pervaded fully with gold there's no there's no part of those gold ornaments that is not gold in the same way god is the substance but appears as all this so there's no place no time no state in which god is not present god means as i say our own real nature um so uh, he exists everywhere, but though he exists everywhere, so long as we are looking outwards, we cannot see God as he actually is, because we're seeing it, God, we're seeing the world, and we're seeing all these names and forms. That is not what God actually is. God is actually that which is shining in our heart as I. So, in order to see Him as He actually is, though, when we look outwards, we are seeing only God, but we are not seeing Him as we actually are. As, as he actually is. That is, when you, when you see the snake, what are you actually seeing? You're seeing only a rope, but you're not seeing it as a rope. You're seeing it as a snake. So, So long as we see God as this world, we are not seeing God as he actually is. So in order to see him as he actually is, we need to turn our attention back within, see him in our own heart. When we see him in our own heart, as our own self, as what we actually are, it's that fundamental awareness I am, But then the ego will merge back into him, and the world, since the world exists only in the view of the ego, ego, will the world will also merge. Everything will merge, and he alone will exist. So it's only after seeing him in our heart that we will see everything as him. In order to see that the whole snake is nothing but a rope, you first need to see it as a, as, as, a, as, a, as a rope. But so long as you see it as a snake, you're not able to see the rope. You, you're seeing the rope, but you're not seeing it as a rope. You're seeing it as a snake. So you need to look at the, uh, at, the rope, at the snake very carefully to see what it actually is. When you see what it actually is, you will see the whole snake from head to toe, from head to tail, was nothing but a rope. Um, Likewise, when we turn within and see ourselves as we actually are, we will see there's nothing other than ourselves. So everything that exists, padellam, all that exists, uh, avanmayam, avan means he, mayam means consisting of or composed of. So just like all the ornaments are composed of gold, This whole world is composed of nothing other than God, who is our own real nature. But in order to see God as he actually is, we first need to see him in our heart. Does that adequately explain that verse, or do you want to ask anything more on that, whoever asked for question?
1: I think so, Michael. Yeah. Um, So let me... uh, (coughs) There is... Uh, There is a question from Sandy. Um, So what about the satsang going on right now? Is it real or not? I'm asking this question not to argue, but to understand better.
0: No, it's all unreal. The only thing that is real is you. Not you as Sandy, but you as I am. That is that fundamental awareness of our own existence. Our existence is real. Our identity is false. So our existence is I am. Our identity is I am Sandy, or I am Michael, or I am Kumar, or I am whoever. That is false. What is real is only I am. So this this, this um, so-called satsang is, is existing in whose view? Only in the view of that I, but is aware of itself as I am Sandy. So uh, since... Since Sandy is unreal, and the Ivat is aware of itself as Sandy is unreal, everything experienced by that Sandy is unreal, except for one thing, I am. That alone is real. All of Bhagavan's teachings are unreal. If Bhagavan's teachings were real, they would be false. Because he tells us everything is unreal. Everything except I am is unreal. So that must include his teachings. So if his teachings are true, they are unreal. If they are are real, they are false. Um, So the the, the teaching, we cannot find the reality in anything other than ourselves. That's why Bhagavan said in paragraph 16 of Nana, Bhagavan says we need to investigate and know ourselves. We cannot investigate and know ourselves in books. That includes all Bhagavan's own teachings, all the Dvnapadu, Upadesh, India, All these we cannot find ourselves in these things. W- why then are these are these texts useful? Because they are pointing out to us where we can see what is real. We can see what is real only within ourselves. So all Bhagavan's teachings are useful. Because they're pointing our attention back at ourself, that, that is the, the central aim of all of Bhagavan's teachings is to turn our attention away from everything else back towards ourself. So, but, but his teachings are true in the sense that they are pointing us in the right direction. They are unreal in the sense that they, nothing other than I am is, is real. When we see ourselves as we actually are, then we will see this whole world, including his teachings, is nothing other than ourselves. So ultimately, everything is real, but it's only real as I am, not real as all these separate um, phenomena that we see in this world, uh, among which his teachings are included, but whereas all other phenomena are drawing our mind outwards, his teachings are telling us, turn within, look within, see yourself. Right. Um. So you, you referred to this, uh, our, our gathering, our discussion as a satsanga. It is a satsanga only in a very loose sense of the term. Sat means what is real, what actually exists. So what is true satsanga is only Being as we actually are, being ourselves alone is satsanga. Turning our attention within and holding on to our own being, that is the alone true satsanga. Because our minds are coming outwards, and because Bhagavan's teachings are directing us to turn our attention back within, associating with his teachings is also an indirect form of satsanga, because his teachings are directing our attention back towards Sat. What is Sat? Only I am. Nothing but I am is Sat.
1: Good, good. Thank you, Michael. Um, Next question from Satya Chilakri. So when we pray, who are we praying to?
0: We are praying to Bhagavan. But Bhagavan is not anything other than ourselves. So we are praying to our own reality, what we actually are. That who is the one praying? It is ego. Ego is addressing its prayer to its own reality, to what it actually is, which is Bhagavan. Right.
1: And to, uh, to the extent that we are considering ourselves as a separate individual, we we need to pray to someone, right? Yes, Before
0: yes. But that someone we're praying to is not up in heaven in the clouds or somewhere. We, he. It is our that God who, he is up, he is in the clouds, he is in the space, he is everywhere, but we can see him only in our own heart. So we need to turn within. Right. So our prayer should also be directed within. We are praying to our own reality, to our own heart. Right. Bhagavan makes that so clear. If we read carefully, uh, any of the hymns of Arunachala, Akshiram Aksharamalai, Navamani Malai, Patikam, Ashtakam, or Pancharatnam, it is very, very clear. Bhagavan is in so many ways indicated, <laughs> but Arunachala is our own real nature. Arunachala is what's shining in our heart as I. Because we're looking outwards, Arunachala appears in the form of a hill. But the reality of that hill is what is shiny in our heart as I. Because we're looking outwards, we see, because Arunacharya is guru, but though he is teaching, he's teaching only through silence. Because our minds are outward going, we're not able to understand that silence. So Arunacharya took the form of Bhagavan, the human form of Bhagavan, in order to teach us in words what he is always teaching in silence, namely turn within, see yourself.
1: Um, thank you, Michael. So there's a question um, uh focusing on that phrase, agreeable to all. Mm. Um, can there be wakeful states, agreeable to all, not just deep sleep? If our belief systems match 100%, does that mean we have shed our egos? Uh,
0: no, um, we haven't. We've shed our ego when there's no one to believe anything, that is, our real nature doesn't believe anything. Our real nature is just as it is. It is pure being, pure awareness. Uh, so belief systems are all ideas. I believe in this. You believe in that. These are all just different ideas. Um, what Bhagavan says is agreeable to all is that state in which I has perished. When I re- I referred to sleep in this context, because in sleep, I has perished, but only temporarily, other you know, I has dissolved, I means ego, ego has dissolved back into its source, the fundamental awareness I am, but because it's only, it's, it's a temporary state, so it rises again. So the fact that we all find sleep agreeable shows that we find a state devoid of I uh, as agreeable, devoid of ego as agreeable. So rather than just I mean, sleep is just a temporary state. Nobody can sleep forever. Even Nivikalpa Samadhi or any form of Manolaya, it's only temporary. As Bhagavan says, what has subsided in Manolaya will rise again. If its form dies, it will not rise. So the, the death of ego, the Mano is what is required. That's why he says uh, Nan Atra. Atra means... Uh, the uh, best that state in which I has perished or I has ceased to exist is agreeable to all. Likewise, in the previous verse, he says, "Yanketu," um, that is, I um, perishing, uh, standing in uh, one's own state is best. So, what he's 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 not talking here just about mano Lea, He's talking. About mano nasa, but mano is so to speak a sample of the state of mano nasa. It is a a temporary sample of that state. So we know from our experience in sleep, but being without ego is very agreeable. So let us be. Let us aim to be without ego eternally, and the only. Ego is nothing but a false awareness of ourselves, so we can get rid of ego only by investigating and knowing what we actually are.
1: Everyone likes to be happy.
0: Yes. (laughs) Being happy is agreeable to all. Right. And we are truly happy only when we're devoid of ego. So long as ego is there, there's always dissatisfaction. Whatever pleasures or joys we may experience in this world, None of them are entirely satisfactory. So we can attain full satisfaction, full happiness only by eradicating ego and remaining as we always actually are.
1: Thank you, Michael. Um, M- Mate is asking this question. Um, we know that by practicing self investigation or vasanas and getting weaker, And our love to be self-attentive is increasing. When I started on this path, I was under the impression that this gradual weakening of our vasanas will be noticeable to us. And that it will seem more and more easy for us to cling to self-attentiveness due to the deepening of our bhakti. However, the more I practice, the more I tend to believe that this process will not be noticeable to us. And that vichara will always seem like a struggle to us. Is this correct? We'll love to hear your comments on this.
0: Uh, yes, in a sense it is. That is, um, the more we the more we practice this, the more we clearly we understand what is it to be self-attentive, and the, the more we thereby recognize how difficult it is to hold steadily on to self-attentiveness. Because of the strength of our vasanas, under their sway our attention keeps on slipping away from ourselves. So it, it is a struggle up to the very end because the very nature of ego, as Bhagavan says in verse 25 of Willardu Napadu uh, grasping form, it comes into existence, grasping form, it stands, grasping and feeding on form, it flourishes abundantly, leaving form, It it grasps form. So grasping form is the very nature of ego. And ego cannot exist without grasping form. So as ego, trying to grasp ourself is going against our very nature as ego. So it is always a struggle. And it will always be a struggle until ego is eradicated. But that doesn't matter. That is, the, the deeper we go in this path, the more we, we find what a struggle it is, an analogy I sometimes give is a beach ball. A beach ball is a big plastic ball, maybe some um, uh, two or three feet in, um, uh, in, uh, in diameter that is um, maybe 60, 70, 80 centimetres in, uh, in, um, in diameter. So it's a big ball. If you children play with them on the beach, if you go to a beach with a beach ball and go into the water and try and press the beach ball down, you're able to press it a little, a short, a, a. Slightly into the water and hold it steady. But the more you try and press it down, the more unsteady it becomes. The more resistance you you face. So you try and press it down, and it slips this way. When you try and rectify that, it slips that way. It's very very difficult to hold a beach ball underwater because it's round. It's always it'll be going this way that way. So the more you try and press it down, the more it will be resisting. Likewise with a mind boom deeper we try to go within, the more our vasanas will be resisting. Uh, Our vasanas means those vasanas are not something other than ourselves. They're our own likings, our own inclinations, our own liking to hold on to other things for our very survival. So it will always seem a struggle, this path. But just because it seems a struggle, we shouldn't think that we are not making progress. The very fact that we are willing to continue struggling is itself a sign of progress.
1: And you use the word seem. It's still a seeming struggle.
0: It is a seeming struggle because being what we actually are is our very nature. We are always that. But so long as we have risen as ego, we make what is actually natural seem unnatural. It seems to be against our nature to attend only to ourselves. It's against our ego nature to attend to ourselves. But... Being aware of nothing other than ourself is our real nature. So it's against our ego nature, but it is our real nature, just holding on to I am. So by trying to hold on to I am, we are slowly renouncing our ego nature and uh, um, returning to our real nature, which is a pure being, pure awareness, pure happiness, pure love.
1: Thank you, Michael. Um, Srikant is asking this question, and it's um, a little long, so let me just read it. Talk can, exists- can I
0: just say one more thing on that? Please. Because that's a, that that question is a very important question. Many people who don't have a clear understanding of what it means to be self-attentive, they say, I was meditating for 20 minutes. I didn't have any thoughts. It was very blissful. And they take that to be self-investigation. That is not self-investigation. Merely stopping thoughts is not self-investigation. There may be so many ways in which we can stop thinking, but the only the thinking we're stopping is the grosser. There's still some subtle thinking going on there because the first thought I is still there. I was meditating for 20 minutes. I didn't experience any thoughts. I experienced a a thought-free state. It was a blank or whatever we say about it. It was very blissful. There's an I that is experiencing that. That I is ego. So merely stopping thoughts is not self-investigation. Self-investigation is holding on to I. To the extent to which we hold on to I, thoughts will stop but if we merely stop thoughts that is not self investigation because we stop thoughts every day when we fall asleep so stopping thoughts is a byproduct of holding on to ourselves but it is not our aim our aim is to know what we actually are to know who am i for that we need to attend to ourselves merely stopping thoughts is not a means to know our real nature the yogis will disagree because in the second uh Sutra of of, of the, the first sutra, where the teaching begins. Uh, in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, is Yoga's chitta vritti nirodha. Yoga is uh, is stopping or curbing or preventing the activity of the mind, the chitta vritti. And then he says, when the in the next uh, sutra, in the third sutra. I can't remember the exact wording, but it's something to the effect. Uh, when you stop the, the chitta vrittis, then you see your real nature. That is not correct. When, when we stop the chitta vrittis, we subside in layer. We don't thereby eradicate ego. So uh, Bhagavan's path is not the path of yoga. That's why Bhagavan says, if you follow the path of yoga, if you try and, and stop, Think about uh, uh, control the chitta is by means of pranayama or other yogic techniques. Before subsiding in layer, you need to turn your mind back within to investigate who am I. That's the import of verse 14 in Upadesh India. That mind which is, is subdued by controlling the breath, only when it is sent on the investigating path, in other words, the path of self-investigation, will its form die. So we need self-investigation is not merely stopping thoughts. It's turning our attention back within. So if you think self-investigation is easy, if you think you're able to sit for 20 minutes um, and, and uh, be without thoughts and therefore you're investigating yourself, that is not investigating yourself. If you're really attending to yourself, it will be a struggle because it's, it's against the very nature of ego. So ego, ego, Ego's very existence is threatened by self attentiveness, so ego will do everything it can to resist. Until we are willing to surrender ourselves completely, we will not be able to hold on to our uh, 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 to self attentiveness. We 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 can hold on to a a, a slight degree of self attentiveness. Uh, for a long for a prolonged period of time but if we try to go deeper into the self-attentiveness the deeper we go the more resistant there will be like if you if you uh want to hold the beach ball just a few centimeters into the sea you may be able to hold it steadily for a prolonged period of time but if you try and push it it com- submerge it completely in the water you won't be able to do so before you get to submerge it completely, it'll have popped up this way or that way or some way. It, it, it's very difficult to keep it steadily deep in the water. That's why Bhagavan recommended trying to hold on to self-attentiveness. He says, nirantara swarupas marana. Uh, uninterrupted self remembrance—that is just holding the beach ball a few centimeters under the water. We need to hold on to at least, as he calls it, a tenuous current of self attentiveness. We need to hold on to. The more we hold on to that tenuous current of self attentiveness, the deeper we will be able to go. So we can hold on to a, a slight degree of self attentiveness for a prolonged period. But if we want to go deeper, then it becomes a real... The deeper we want to go, the more there's a struggle, the more resistance there will be. And merely stopping thoughts uh, or, or imagining you're in a thought-free state is not holding on to a tenuous degree of self-attentiveness. Whatever the mind may be doing, whatever the body speech may be doing, we are always aware I am. We should try to to the extent possible to hold on to that... Uh, We should try to remember that fundamental awareness, I am. At least to some extent.
1: So in relation to that, um, Srikanth is asking a question. Um, Thought exists in a dimension where our sense organs are active. Our past experiences through the sense organs are stored as memory. During self-investigation practice, when thoughts occur... we can conclude that our mind is still in the dimension of our sense organs. Is this a right statement? Do thoughts arise from different layers or are thoughts seated in one particular dimension? In a few cases where I feel thoughts are subsided, there is a thought which searches for other thoughts. I have seen prompts like let go to whom are these thoughts occurring. I understand Sri Sadhuam had suggested a few prompts to raise our vantage point or there other prompts so you know, okay
0: I'll... that's quite a lot of questions yeah, <laughs> but, <exactly>. um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs>
1: um,
0: it'd probably be better if you can break it up a little so, so let I... me
1: repeat the first question um, yeah. um, as for benefit of all um, thought exists in the dimension where our sense organs are active our past experiences through the sense organs are stored as memory. During self-investigation practice, when thoughts occur, we can conclude that our mind is still in the dimension of our sense organs. Is this a right statement? We'll
0: start with that first. Um, That is, uh, the sense organs are thoughts. The body is a thought. But so long as we rise as ego, we cannot rise as ego without taking a body to be ourselves the body we take to be ourself, as Bhagavan says, it is a form composed of five sheaves. So all the five sheaves are included in the term body. So um, uh, there cannot be thought without this fundamental thought, this first thought, the ego, which is the thought, or the, the false awareness, I am this body. So we are never completely away from the five senses so long as we are uh, rising as ego um so uh but this body and the five senses which are part of the body are all uh are all only thoughts um but the ego cannot stand without holding on to these thoughts as itself so The senses are not a separate domain. They are part of the body which ego always takes to be I. So we are never totally away from the five senses so long as we rise as ego. Um, About memories, the the yes, when we we memories start off as perceptions. Through the five senses, we experience things. Or even we, not all memories are derived from the five senses because there's our internal response to that. That is, when we experience something, it creates, um, within us, we experience joy or sorrow or something. So, for example, if we experience bereavement, where where someone very close to us passes away. We are not only remembering the passing away of that person, we are remembering how much grief we felt about that, how sad we were feeling. So um but so so not all memories are derived from directly from the five senses, but it's all so that all these things are so entangled. Why we feel that grief? Because through our five senses, we have come to know that our friend or our close relative or our beloved one has passed away. So we we can't separate all these things. Once we rise as ego, we take a body to the eye and the body consists of five sheaths, which includes the uh, the five senses and includes um, the mind, and- the memories, the perceptions, the 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 emotional responses, the likes, the dislikes, everything is all included in in the five sheaves, which are included in the term body. So we never really separate ourselves from the five sheaves so long as we rise as ego. Sorry, we never separate ourselves from the five senses so long as we rise as ego. Right.
1: Um, So do thoughts arise from different layers or are thoughts seated in one particular dimension? I think you
0: answer. I don't know exactly what you mean, but, but the, the five sheaves are sometimes described as if they're different layers, but they're not different layers in a, in a physical sense. Sometimes they're compared to the, um, to the layers in an onion, but that is a rather gross analogy because the five sheaves are not like that. They are different layers in the sense that they are different degrees of subtlety, what is most gross is this physical body it's hard we can hit him and everything more subtle than the physical body is all the physiological processes that are happening in the body the breathing the heartbeat the um the the, the digestion the the circulation all these uh physiological processes are what are collectively called prana the life so that is more subtle than the physical body. Um, and subtler than that is the mind. The mind in this context means, the manamaya kosha, means the, the grosser functions of the mind, perception, memory, um, emotions, all these. This is the, these are subtler than the uh, prana, which is subtler than the, body, than the physical form of the body. Subtler than the mind is the intellect. And subtler than the intellect is the, uh, is the Anandamaya Kosha. The Anandamaya Kosha is the Chittam, the will. That consists of Vishaya, or of Vasanas. All Vasanas are contained in. Uh, most of the Vasanas, for most of us, are, are Vishaya Vasanas. We, we may have some degree of sat- that. Is all Vasanas can be classified into two categories. There's Satvasana and Vishaya Vasanas. Satvasana is one. Vishaya Vasanas are many. Satvasana means the liking the inclination to be as we actually are, to hold on to our being. Um, so all the Vasanas, the Satvasana and all the Vishaya Vasanas make up the will. That is the subtlest layer of all. And from the, those Vasanas that make, from the Vishaya Vasanas arise everything else. So all the other four sheaves are a projection of the vishaya vasanas And all the thoughts and f- perceptions and memories and everything we experience, it's all a projection of the vishaya vasanas The term vishaya means object or phenomena. So everything that we perceive, everything that appears and disappears in our view, is a vishaya, And the seeds that give rise to those vishayas are a vish- vishaya vasanas so, in a sense, if you ask if that is the sense in which you're asking the question, the layer from which all thoughts rise is that is that causal layer. That's why the Anandamaya Kosha is called Vakarana Sarira, because the Vasanas are the cause of everything that we experience. Subtler than the Vasanas are the one whose Vasanas they are, namely ego. Ego is not any of the five sheaves. Ego is that which misappropriates all the five sheaves, as I am this body consisting of these five sheaves. So, ego is not any of the five sheaves, Uh, but it's that which, which experiences itself as all the five sheaves. So, ego is subtlest of all. But what is most What is closest to ego is its vishayabhasanas. Ego cannot remain for a moment without vishayabhasanas, because vishayabhasanas are its inclination to cling to things other than itself. And it's only by clinging to things other than itself, it's only by urupatri, clinging to form, that ego can come into existence, arise and stand and flourish. So, so thank I you hope Matthew. that answered that part of the question adequately.
1: Yeah, and then yes, finally, thank, you, thank, thank you, Srikanth. Um, and then finally, Srikanth actually he emailed me, and um, I've had time to respond to that. But I'm glad that uh, you put that question here. Um, to, to, uh, you know, Swami uh, Sadhuum mentions um, elsewhere that um, to, to who thinks or to whom do these thoughts arise? You know, as, as prompts. Mm-hmm. Um could are there other prompts? The question is, are there other prompts?
0: That is all of Bhagavan's teachings are are um are pointing us in one direction and one direction alone, turning our attention back to ourselves. So if we understand Bhagavan's teachings correctly, all of his teachings are prompts, turning our attention back to ourselves. One of the very powerful means. That he gave us to turn our attention back to ourselves is what he called to investigate uh, to whom do these appear. Investigating doesn't mean questioning. We can question if it helps us to turn our attention back towards ourselves. But the point isn't asking the question. Whatever appears, to whom does it appear? It appears only to ourselves. So investigating to whom did this appear means turning our attention away from what appears back towards ourself, the one to whom it appears. So investigating to whom is, is the process, by, by, is the turning of our attention away from other things back towards ourself. Investigating who am I is holding our attention on ourself. That is, in order to hold on to self-attentiveness, we first need to turn our attention back to ourselves. So the the clue to turn our attention back to ourselves, the most powerful clue Bhagavan has given us is this simple, um, well, he expressed it in the form of a question, to whom? So this question, to whom, is a very powerful, whatever may appear, to whom does it appear? Whether we're experiencing joy or sorrow, whatever we may experience in life, to whom, who is experiencing it? To whom does it all appear? And we turn our attention back to ourselves. That is the that's a that's that's a very, very important part of the process because very soon after we turn our attention back to ourselves, it's going to slip away again. So we again have to turn our attention back to ourselves. So this is a it's a, a we we are constantly the need to turn our attention more and more within is constantly there because the more we turn our attention within the more it slips outwards so the more we t- need to turn it back within again so that is a very very important um pointer whatever pointers has Bhagavan given us well every verse of uladunapat is a pointer every verse of acharamala is a pointer every, every Every teaching of Bhagavan, if understood correctly, is a pointer. It's pointing us back in the same direction. It's pointing us back to, to look within to see what we actually are.
1: Yeah. Um, and, you know, um, like for example, in, in verse 26, I think, um, uh, is it, right? Yeah. So, so that sometimes that has acted as a prompt for me, um, you yes. know, and and then in uh, another time. But uh,
0: when we are attending to us, when Bhagavan says uh, being oneself alone is knowing oneself. That applies not to, Obviously, in that context, he's referring to the ultimate. When we know ourselves as we actually are, it is just being ourselves. But to the extent to which we are attending to ourself we are there by being as we actually are so attending to ourselves is not a doing it is a being it is as that that is the ego that rises to do things and to know things when it turns its attention back within to know itself it subsides and along with it all it's doing and it's knowing subsides so uh, the more we attend to ourselves, the closer we come to our natural state of just being. Right.
1: Thank you, Michael. Um, l- um, there's another that question. Is, that is
0: why merely reading Bhagavan's teachings is not sufficient. Reading his teachings is sravana. We need to think deeply about it. What is the implication? Why is Bhagavan saying this? Whatever Bhagavan teaches us, it's for a purpose. If we merely understand the words he says, without understanding the purpose of those words, our understanding of his teachings will be very very superficial. So we need to understand that the purpose, whatever Bhagavan has taught us, it is for one reason and one reason alone to turn our attention back to ourself. So we need to, we need to understand how every teaching of his is directing our attention back to ourself, to our own being.
1: Right. Thank you. And
0: to understand that we need to think deeply about it. And, and in order to think deeply about it and understand it correctly, we need to, clarity that clarity comes from putting it into practice the more we put it into practice the more we tap into the inner clarity that is ever in our heart so to speak and the more we tap into that clarity the clearer the in, the implications but not only the meaning but also the implication of his words becomes clearer and clearer that is why sravana manana nidityasana all are important most important of all obviously is only nidityasana but the sravana and manana are great aids to that but far more important than the mere sravana is the manana if we don't do manana we won't understand correctly what we've what we've heard or read and if we haven't understood it we won't be able to apply it properly um
1: so there's a question regarding um, your most recent um, post on verse 7 of Vakshar yeah. um In that you write, one thing exists and shines eternally and without ever undergoing any change whatsoever in all times, in all places, and in all states. And we can discover this only by his grace. So the question is, what is that grace and how may we find this one thing? Thank you, Michael.
0: His grace is, is that one thing that actually exists, namely I am. He's, that is the nature of I am is Satchitananda. When, when play asks Bhagavan, um, the first question he asked Bhagavan is, um, uh, Nana, who am I? Bhagavan replied, Arivenan, awareness alone is I. And then he Shri asked, What is the nature of that awareness? Ariven in Sarupa Medu. And now I do. Uh, Bhagavan replied, Sachidananda. So what we actually are is Sachidananda. That Ananda aspect, that happiness aspect is the love aspect. So happiness and love are inseparable. As Bhagavan says in um uh in the first paragraph of Nana, priyataku uh, Sukhame kāram Adalalam. So, the happiness, the happiness is the cause of love. Likewise, love is the cause of happiness. If you, if you, if we love something, when we get it, it makes us happy. So, love and happiness are inseparable. Ultimately, they are one and the same thing. So, our real nature is not only pure being, pure awareness, pure happiness, but also pure love. Because we are Ekameva and one only without a second, we love nothing other than ourself. But in the view of our real nature, which is Bhagavan, nothing other than himself exists. So he doesn't see us as other than himself. He sees us as himself. So he loves us as himself. So he has infinite love for us. He, To tell the truth, he loves us more than we love ourselves because he loves us as we actually are, whereas we love ourselves as this little person whom we mistake ourselves to be. So his love is far greater than our love. The, 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 the working or the action of that love in our life is what we call grace that love doesn't actually do anything. Though we experience it as his aral sail, the working of his grace, it is not actually doing. Grace does everything just by being. As Bhagavan explains in the, in the 15th paragraph of Nana, using the analogy of everything that happens on earth in the mere presence of the sun, and the needle moving in the presence of, mere presence of a magnet, like that, all the... Five divine functions, creation, sustenance, uh, dissolution, veiling, uh, and grace. All these have, grace there means removal of uh, uh, of uh, the veiling, of the ignorant. All these happen by his mere presence, by uh, his isan sanidana visesha matratal. That means by the s- special nature of, uh, of the mere presence of God. So by his just being as he actually is, he is is bestowing grace on all of us. So we, with our finite mind, we cannot adequately understand grace. That's why Bhagavan begins uh, the first verse of Arunachala Ashtakam saying Arivaru giriena Amadarum." It stands as an insentient hill when he says it stands as an insentient hill what he implies is it stands as if an insentient hill that is when we see it it seems to be just a hill of rock um but ad uh, 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 uh um um uh it it's uh uh, uh, uh its um, its action, mean the action of its grace, is um, is is as is wonderful. It it it, it is very uh, very dark. It, it is very difficult, or very it is not possible for anyone to understand it. That is, with our finite mind, we can't understand grace. If you want to understand grace, there's only one way: know yourself. You yourself have a grace. So you cannot know. You cannot understand grace without understanding yourself. And why is it? Why does Bhagavan say? But grace is absolutely essential. Why is why is grace necessary to know ourselves? Because we who are trying to know ourselves are ego. The very nature of ego is to go outwards. So having the love to go within is against the very nature of ego. So the love to turn within. It's not coming from ego. It's not coming from our ego nature. It's coming from our real nature, which is grace. So, without the without the the seed of love that is planted in our heart by grace and nurtured in our heart by grace, we cannot. Uh, we 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 wouldn't even begin to try to follow this path. That's why Bhagwan often said, "Grace is the beginning, the middle, and the end." It is grace that attracts us to this path. It is grace that supports us while we're following this path. And eventually, it is grace that will swallow us. That is the end. Until we are swallowed completely by grace, we haven't yet reached the end.
1: Thank you, Michael. Um, So there is a um, good question here. Um, Can we follow Bhagwan's path? Even if you're not familiar with Indian culture, some concepts feel hard to grasp or alien to me. For example, I find it hard to feel devotion to Arunachala. No offense intended, but to me, it is just a hill. I still feel great love for Ramana. I find his kindness towards all the most heart melting. I'm thinking this this because, this because is because I come from the Christian culture where we are encouraged to be devoted to saints and Jesus. How to understand That Arunachala is not devoid of awareness. Um, I have trouble reconciling a hill that seems to be devoid of awareness with um, the very center of awareness that Ramana considers it to be. Maybe because I associate awareness
0: with mind. Okay, the truth is you have far greater love for Arunachala than you know, because Arunachala Though it appears outwardly in the form of a hill, what Arunacha actually is, is that which is shining in your heart as I. So do you not have love for I? We, we all love ourselves, as Bowman says in the first paragraph of Nana. Um, for everyone, the greatest love is only for oneself. So we all love ourselves. So we all love our natural, whether we know it or not. We may not recognize, but what we are seeing externally in the form of a hill is nothing but our own reality. But that is, it, that's what it is. That's what Bhagavan has said. What, what, what appears in the form of a hill is what is ever shining in our heart as I. Regarding your, your more general question that you started with, how necessary is it to be familiar with Indian culture? It is not necessary at all, but you do need to be familiar with one thing. Are you familiar with I? Are you familiar with, with, with that awareness I am? yes there's no one who is not familiar with that there's nothing we are more familiar with than that awareness i am we may overlook it but we are very very familiar with it because we are that so that's all we need to be familiar with but the problem is we are not familiar enough with it we are we are becoming we have become too familiar with the world so we have overlooked for basic familiarity with ourselves, So we need to give up being familiar with the world. We need to be familiar, become familiar with our own being. That is, we are always familiar with our own being, but we are overlooking that. We need to restore that familiarity with our own being. That is being faithful to our, our Lord and Master. Because our Lord and Master is that, who, he who is shining in our heart as I. So if instead of attending to I, we allow our mind to go out and and be familiar with the world, that is being unfaithful. That is being like an unfaithful wife who instead of uh, being familiar only with her husband, she allows herself to go out in the world and be familiar with so many other men, Uh, familiar in the sense of being intimate with other men that is we when we allow our mind to go outwards we are being intimate with things other than ourselves that is lack of faithfulness so we if to be truly faithful to bhagavan we need to hold on to i because he is i he appears in outward form as arunachala and in the human form of ramana in order to turn our attention back within so the real Arunachala, the real Ramana, is that which is shiny in our heart as I. Ariati Tarajiva Dahavari Jagvahil uh, Arivairami Paramatuman Arunachala Ramana Arunachala Ramana is the Paramatma, the Supreme Self, our ultimate Self, which is ever existing blissfully in the heart, in, in, in the cave of the heart, of all different jivas, beginning with Hari, beginning from the highest god down to the smallest and what is shining in the heart of all of them at that fundamental awareness eye, that is Ramana. So how do we know him? Parivalulam Uruha, with the heart melting with love, uh, entering the cave where he dwells, um, the eye of awareness will be opened And you will know this, uh, you will know your real nature, you will know the truth of your real nature, it will reveal itself. So what you need to become more and more familiar with is that which you're already familiar with, namely I am. You need to give up being familiar with anything else.
1: And it's okay, right? I mean, um, as long as there's attraction to Bhagawan and his teachings, uh, that's fine too, you know. uh, That's the starting
0: point. But what is the point of, but why did Bhagavan appear in outward form? Why did he give us this teaching? It was to turn us within. So we shouldn't just stop with being devoted to Bhagavan and to his teaching. We need to put it into practice. What is the use of Bhagavan's teachings if we don't put it into practice?
1: Exactly. Thank you, Michael. Um, so then this next question here from Sandy. Can you please um, comment about practices like listening to Vedic chants, like Sri Rudram, which you know is being sung at um, Ramanashram? Uh, what are the benefits of this?
0: Um, <clears throat> I'm not aware of any benefit. <laughs> um, if someone knows some benefit, they can tell you. According to Bhagavan, the practice we need to do is to turn our attention within and see who am I. So seeing what we actually are, that is the beneficial practice. All these, there are other types of practices. It depends with what spirit you're doing it. Most of the vast majority of the Vedas are, belong to what is called karmakanda. That is, it, it is the ritualistic portion. It teaches ritualistic actions for, for fulfillment of desires in this world and the next. So, if you want to, to have a uh, a prosperous life in this world and go to heaven in the next world, all these Vedic rituals are prescribed for that. That is the the primary purpose of them. Of that's the vast majority of Vedas. Why? Because that's what most people are here for. Most people want they want to have a happy life in this lifetime, and they want to go to heaven afterwards. Um, they don't want to just stop. They don't want to be just happy in this world and they don't want to be just happy in the next world. They want the best of both worlds. They want to be happy here and now and happy in the next world. So that is what the, because that is what people want, Vedas uh, cater to that. But the end of the Vedas, the Vedanta, the ultimate aim of the Vedas is what is taught in Vedanta. Vedantate Vera Vilangum Veda Poral arun, arun, Arunachala Bhagavan praising Akshuram by uh, Aranachala, grant me the import of the Vedas which shines without another in Vedanta. So it's in Vedanta, but, but real import of the Vedas is to be found. And what is that import? It's that which shines without another, one without a second. That's what Bhagavan is referring to there. So what is that one without a second? Tatvamasi. you are that. So in the Vedas, there are very, very useful teachings, but there are also a lot of teachings to cater to all sorts of uh, tastes that people have. So Rudram and Chamakum are usually sung together. I don't know much about the meaning of Rudram. I think it's a it's a praise of Rudra, um, which is who is one of the Vedic gods who later became associated with Shiva. That is, Shiva is not one; uh, he's not actually one of the Vedic gods. He is one of the gods of of uh, a, a later development of Hinduism. Develop these uh, uh, Vishnu, Shiva, and all these. This is later with the development of Bhakti Maga, which came much after the early parts of the Vedas. So Rudram is one of the uh, Rudra is one of the uh, Vedic deities, and Rudram is in, is a sotra in praise of um, uh, Rudra. But according to the, the Vedic those who who have faith in the Vedas, who chant these Vedas, they will never chant Rudram without Chamakam. Chamakam is very important. And what does Chamakam mean? You want to know the benefit of Chamakam? Every line of Chamakam is saying its benefit. It's called Chamakam because it, every, every line or every sentence ends Cha-mei. Cha means and. May me means to me. So basically, it is a long shopping list of all the worldly desires you could have cows to me, sons to me, uh, uh, this to me, that to me, heaven to me, this to me, this to to me, to me. So it's all a pure, pure Kamiata prayer. So these Vedas are not for. Uh, the, the, this karmakanda portion of the Vedas is not for those who are following the spiritual path. So though they chant all these th- things, they chant chamakam in, the, in Ramanashram the Bhagwan shrine every day. But what, what connection does chamakam have with Bhagavan's teachings? Bhagavan's teachings are about not, and this to me and this to me, it is about giving up everything. To whom is all this? me. Who am I? We turn our attention back to ourselves. So we are not seeking to have cows and uh, wealth and this and that and sons and progeny who will do karmas for the good of our soul. We are not seeking these things. We are seeking the eradication of our soul, of the eradication of ego. So that is Kamiya Maga. This is Nishkamiya Maga. That is pravritti magha, this is nibriti maga Pravritti means going outwards, achieving this and gaining things. Nibriti is withdrawing, sinking back into our heart. So chamakam is, di- is the diametric opposite of Bhagavan's teachings. But they chant it every day in Ramalasham. What is the benefit? God alone knows. <laughs> I mean, you have to ask those who chanted. Don't ask me, because I have such things do not appeal to me. Having 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 been drawn to Bhagavan's teachings, we cannot be attracted to such things. So those who are like such things, they are not yet ready. They may be devoted to Bhagavan. They may take Bhagavan as a god. They may think Bhagavan will give them all these things, the cows and the gold and the heaven and suns and whatever else they are asking for. If you, if you see, they, at one time they published a book, um, the, the Paraina Yashram, they gave a translation of that. So you can, if you can get hold of that book, you can read Chamakam. You can see all the things that are asked for there. And you can ask yourself, is that Bhagavan's power?
1: Yeah. Um well, occasionally, you know, if I do I accidentally hear it, um, I just use it as a calming thing, you know, like just you know, focus yes, on your awareness. Can just and that's it. Yeah, bet, that's
0: it's it's better not to know the meaning because if you know the <laughs> yeah, meaning. Exactly.
1: That's what Bhagwan. I remember saying, somebody asked him, what is the meaning? It's like you don't need to worry about the meaning, just <laughs> yes, use it as a calming thing and just focus on your awareness. You know?
0: yes, yes.
1: Something to that effect.
0: Yeah, yeah. Better not to know the meaning.
1: Right. Um, so thank you Michael um with that um we'll conclude this nice session thank you again
0: okay om namo bhagavate